Father, we humble ourselves in this moment, just before we open your word to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we join all creation and we say holy. Lord, we join each other and we declare holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Even as I utter those words, Lord, it is feels like a shameful thing that I, a sinner, would be given the opportunity and the privilege to declare your holiness when I am not. Lord, forgive me, forgive us for serving ourselves in moments, Lord, where we should be serving you and lifting high your name in worship because you are holy. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is to be in your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege it is to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the blessing and the privilege it is to open your word and hear what you have to say to us. And so now, Lord, as the, as the, our children will go and hear from you, um, as they open the word together with their classes, Lord, as we do the same here, Lord, may your magnificent word be declared with great power and authority into the lives of each one of us. And so, Lord, may your word do the speaking, we pray, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. All right, kids. See you later. And as they leave, if you want to turn to 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 4 today, um, I was supposed to preach last week, and you were supposed to be here last week. Uh, but our guys that take care of the parking lot and uh, spend time um, preparing our facilities for you and for us determined that it would probably be wise to not meet last week. And so we did meet last week, so we're here this week. And uh, of the people that pray for me, if you're wondering why you didn't hear from me this week and why I'm standing in front of you about to, pre- to preach a sermon that I didn't ask you to pray for, it's not true. I did ask you to pray for it a week ago. So thank you for your prayers. And uh, if you want to continue to pray right now, of course, I absolutely and most assuredly welcome that. So uh, if you want to keep praying um, as, the, as the sermon is delivered, that would be marvelous. Well, as a reminder, last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago, I may say that often, but uh, understand that I'm talking about two weeks ago when Jasper um, preached his sermon, uh, the first handful of verses of chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, following that, I had numerous discussions with people that were, that were moved by um, this passage in particular as it relates to um, that we would no longer live for human passions, but that we would be people when we come into relationship with Christ that would live for the will of God. And Peter goes on to say, as a reminder, that 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 time is past for us to live the way the world does, to live the way the world does, that we should no longer um, live for human passions, but for the will of God. Not living driven by our senses, by our passions, by drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And of course, that is an incomplete list for the way we could serve ourselves instead of serving Jesus Christ. And so people were personally convicted by that. Like, how am I guilty of joining the world and serving my passions? 
coming to a place of confession before the Lord, laying that at his feet. But then also recognizing, if I am living that way in front of the world, and Paul used, or excuse me, Peter uses the word in, in a flood of debauchery, how is it then that I am proclaiming Christ when I am living just like they are? I have caused them no reason for surprise that I wouldn't join them because I continue to join them. So we have people that were very much convicted by that. And so it drove into them a sense of urgency. Like one, one gentleman I spoke with, he's like, man, my time is growing short. I could see in him um, a desire to give in to this flood of urgency that the Lord was driving in him. But then also, with respect to the, verse 5, those who are going to give an account because God is standing ready to judge both the living and the dead, there are people in our lives right now that do not know relationship with Jesus Christ. They don't know who Jesus is. And so they were driven by a sense of urgency to make every moment count from here on out. Being careful to to share the Lord Jesus with those who are in their lives. Urgency. Urgency is what came out of Jasper's sermon a couple of weeks ago. And now today, today's passage starts with the end of all things is at hand. So if the thought about loved ones and ourselves standing before the judgment seat of God at the end is not enough to provoke urgency in our hearts and in our lives, Peter goes on to say, the end of all things is at hand. And this should drive even more urgency for us to be ones who are about the fulfillment of the great commission that God gave to us that we would glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. And so I want to challenge you with a thought today that time is absolutely of the essence. Time, Peter is saying, is always of the essence. Paul says that we should always be making the most of every opportunity he has provided us because the days are evil, that we would declare Jesus Christ to those who are in our lives. Time is of the essence, and so what sort of people ought we to be if time is actually of the essence? Peter's going to answer that in the next couple of verses. He's going to say, hey, look, no matter what's happening around you, no matter what shakes the world, should not shake you, because you are saved and claimed by the person of Jesus Christ. You are established in his kingdom from now until forevermore. Nothing that is happening around us and in this world should ever shake us. He's going to tell us that as a result of our salvation, we should love one another earnestly. There is not a greater tool in our tool belt than to love one another earnestly. That we would serve each other with zeal. Peter's going to tell us that we should make absolutely every, every word that comes from our mouth count, never wasting a word. Time is of the essence. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 7, and we're going to go um, to verse 11 today. All right? Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Show, show hospitality, hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I wonder what makes Peter say the end of all things is at hand. Because if you know the apostle Peter was the disciple Peter that followed Jesus for three years. And I believe as Peter penned these words, the end of all things is at hand. He is recalling a moment when the disciples were asking Jesus, hey, can you tell us when things are going to start to wind up and you're going to establish your kingdom? Mark chapter four says this. Mark chapter four says, Jesus is telling the disciples, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor he says, even I, the son of man, but only the father himself. He has just declared to Peter in these words, hey, look, I'm not going to know. And if I'm not going to know, the angels aren't going to know. And if the angels aren't going to know, you're not going to know. But Peter tells us here, the end of all things is at hand. Jesus, back in Mark, he says this. So as a result, be on your guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Here we stand 2,000 years after Peter wrote, the end of all things is at hand. And what's our temptation to think? Well, he said it 2,000 years ago, and the people he wrote to didn't experience the end of all things. And so if just a couple of years after Peter declares that, the end of all things didn't happen, here we are 2,000 years later, and the end of all things still hasn't happened. And so if they still haven't happened now, what gives us any level of assurance that they're going to happen throughout the course of our lives? So we need to be very careful when we ask questions like that and we question whether or not what Peter is saying is true. Now, we have a great privilege here. Um, those, that for the, those that Peter wrote to in his first letter, they didn't get the fullness of what we're able to get as Peter has written his second letter. Because Peter says, and we're going to turn to it now, if you will, just a couple of pages over, 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 3. If we are people who live in such a way that we don't live expecting that Christ is going to return today, we have the potential to become scoffers, ones that scoff and laugh at and make fun of the potential of Jesus coming today. He's not going to do it because he didn't do it 2,000 years ago. What makes us think he's going to do it today? Look at verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And so Peter's saying this, hey, look, if you are someone that doesn't live with the expectancy of Christ coming back today, 
the temptation will be, I'm going to give myself over to the flesh. I'm going to follow my passions. I'm going to follow my sensuality. I'm going to serve myself because Jesus isn't coming back. He's probably not coming back in my lifetime. So I'm going, the temptation is that we give ourselves over to the temptations of the flesh. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Verse four says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Far be it from us that we would think that way. Listen to what Martha, Martin Luther was, um, what he said when he was asked. What would happen, Martin Luther, what would happen if you knew, how would it change your life if you knew today that Jesus was coming tomorrow? How would that change the way you live? And his response was this. He said, I reply, he would, this is what I would do. I would plant a tree and I would pay my taxes. A very simple and straightforward message saying, there is the thought of Jesus coming tomorrow should not change the way I'm living today because I am already living at full capacity as though Christ is coming tomorrow. It doesn't change my life because I'm going after, I'm making the most of every opportunity, understanding that the days are evil. We should not be scoffers. We should be living as though he is coming today. Bounce down to verse eight. Second Peter three, verse eight. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So as far as Christ is concerned, in his eternal perspective, tomorrow is now. A thousand years is a day and a day is a thousand years to him. The Lord is not slow, praise God for verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Praise God for his patience because I know there are people in my life that I am very happy that he is taking his time in this moment to come back because there are still those that I love that need to know Jesus as their personal savior. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. These handful of verses should drive in us a sense and a desire for urgency because we know and we believe and are living as though the time is of the essence. Christ is coming back. And in verse 11, he asks this grand question, which is our question that we are going to seek to answer today. Because time is of the essence, since all things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Church, let's live as though Christ is coming today. Let's live as though Christ is coming tomorrow. And let's constantly be asking ourselves, so then, what sort of person ought I to be? Peter's going to answer those questions for us, okay? So here's the first one. What sort of person, what sort of people ought we to be? Ones who are 
unshaken by that which shakes the world. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Okay, we understand the word self-control. So if I'm a person that's given to anger, I'm not going to express myself in anger. If I am a person that's driven by impatience, self-control says, yes, I understand, I understand the corruption in my heart that drives my impatience, but I'm going to honor God by not expressing my impatience to you, waiting on him to change my heart. Yes, self-controlled and sober-minded. But to get more to the point of what Peter is trying to say here, he's, well, he's not what he's trying to say, it's what he is communicating, is this. That we should be individuals who are clear-minded, unshaken, and not at all disturbed by what we see happening around us. We are at complete peace, even though the world is going crazy and out of control. I shared with the, uh, the production team this morning and the worship team. I don't know if you recall this, but let's suppose that you were in Miami at a mall like three weeks ago. And like 200 cop cars come racing up to the mall that you are outside of. And you're standing there with your family eating your ice cream cone. And you see this 10-foot alien walking past. People are going crazy. They don't know what to do with it. Let's suppose, actually this is a real event, except for the alien piece. It was not real. But it drew a whole bunch of attention. Let's suppose it was real. And you're standing there with your family eating your ice cream cone. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to that? Remember, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He resides in your heart. And you see this happening. What are you going to do? Are you going to be entertained by it and just keep eating your ice cream cone, trusting that God has absolutely everything in control? Or are you going to join the masses running hysterically from what you are seeing that turns out to be a farce? This is what Peter's trying to say. Even if you saw a 10-foot alien hovering across the ground, moving toward you, and you're eating your ice cream cone, you just keep eating your ice cream cone at complete peace, not shaken, because you know God is God of the universe, even over an alien. Why in the world is it so important for us to be unshaken? Why is it important for us to be self-controlled? Peter goes on to say, it is for the sake of your prayers. Now think about this. When are your prayers most, when does it stand the most potential for your prayers to align with the will of God? When you are unshaken and at peace with what's going on, not moved by the 10-foot alien, or when you are running hysterically because you don't trust In that moment, you are provided the opportunity. I am going to be calm and at peace, and I'm going to pray in accordance with the will of God, or I'm going to run hysterically, crying out, God, save me, which is a fine prayer. 
But think about the prayer that's offered in anxiety. How tempting it is then to pray in accordance with my will instead of God's will. Peter is saying, do not be shaken. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in him. Pray in accordance with the will of God and don't be freaked out and anxious and driven to panic, screaming out prayers that are for your own personal well-being. For the sake of our prayers, controlled simply because we trust, we are at peace, and we know that God is in control. So a grand question for us should always be, well, then how can I be self-controlled and sober-minded? How can I be unshaken by the things that shake this world? Listen to what Isaiah chapter 26 verse, verse 3 says. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The person who keeps his mind's thoughts fixed on God himself, the one who is in control of all things, the one who is all-powerful, immovable, unshaken himself. When the mind of the individual is constantly fixed on that one, There is nothing that can shake the individual because he or she is always at peace, driven by their trust in him. Well, how do I get that? Well, here's the hard part. We have to permit God the opportunities over and over and over again to prove himself trustworthy. Because if God is not proving himself to you over and over and over again to be trustworthy, you are not going to learn what it means to trust in God. You're not going to learn that he actually is trustworthy. So we must settle in, self-controlled, sober-minded, thoughts fixed on God himself, completely at peace, praying in accordance with the will of God and asking him to develop our trust in him. Folks, we ought to be people that are unshaken by the mess that our world finds itself in today because Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's another one. Because time is of the essence, what sort of people ought we to be? We should be ones that love earnestly. Look at verse eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Turn to First or yeah, First Corinthians chapter... Anyone want to take a guess? 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love, and may I challenge you with this church in accordance with the word of God, is the greatest heart-settling, self-controlling, mind-centering truth of Scripture. Love is it. And if you have yet to experience the love of Christ, it is my great call to you. Come into relationship with him and experience this magnificent love that Christ has for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love. Love is this. So what if it read like this? Tell me, tell me, would this drive you to a place of self-control and sober-mindedness, unshakenness? Tell me if this would be a reality if this is actually the way the passage read. Love is completely impatient 
And the result of impatience is what I experience every day. Love is not kind. Love is angry. Love envies. And envy drives the individual to go after the things that the person wants. Self-driven. Love is boastful. It has so much to say about itself. It is arrogant. It is absolutely rude. It does not insist, or excuse me, it does, love does insist on its own way. It is not irritable. (laughs) I keep flipping into what it actually says. Love is irritable. So imagine now experiencing the irritability of someone in your life. They're not loving. It is irritable and it is resentful. Love actually keeps records of wrongs. You are held under your record of wrong forever. How does love feel right now? Love rejoices when lies prevail. Love cannot stand anything. Love does not believe anything. Love has no hope at all. And love cannot endure anything. Suppose that's exactly what the passage said regarding what love is. How do you feel in the moment when you hear it read like that? I believe you would feel absolutely shaken in a place of complete despair if that is what God has to offer to each one of us. But we know that is not true. Listen to what it says. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy, does not boast. It is not arrogant, it is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable, it is not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, It believes all things, it hopes all things, and love endures all things. The greatest, let me say it again, the heart, the greatest heart-settling truth in all of Scripture is the magnificent love of Christ that he extends to you and me, that he does and acts out perfectly for those that come into relationship with him. There is not a greater unsettling truth. This is what love is. Keep loving one another earnestly. So if Christ loves us like that, we also should love each other with the same earnestness and passion that Christ loves you and me. Peter doesn't stop there. Above all, verse 8 says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's what that does not mean. Love covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean that those in our lives who are practicing sin, that are gripped with sin, that we lift the rug up and brush it underneath the rug to not be addressed. When, when Peter says love covers a multitude of sins, he does not mean ignore sin. He means we address sin. 
We're called as brothers and sisters in Christ to help each other in our walk with Christ. Helping one another see the error of our ways, the times when we don't love as we should, we don't respond to others as we should, when we're not expressing the love of Christ when we should. Yes, we are supposed to address these things. But here's what it means. I am, according to love, I'm going to bear with those in my life that understand what I am doing is sinful and I am asking for your help to help me run away from and move away from this sin. And yes, I'm going to fall tomorrow and I'm going to fall next week and I'm going to follow, I'm going to fall the third week and then I'm going to have a string of days where I'm going to fall every day. I'm going to fall on my face before the Lord and I'm going to confess my sin to him and I'm asking you for help. Love covers a multitude of sins. We walk alongside those individuals, helping them fight the battle against their sin. Love covering a multitude of sins means this. I imagine when Peter wrote this down, he remembers the day where he stood next to a fire as Christ was being beaten and tortured and was asked three times, hey, you know him, don't you? And three times Peter denied that he knew the person of Jesus Christ. He denied it. And after the third denial, he was stricken by magnificent grief that he would do such a thing. And guess what Jesus did? He extended his most magnificent love to Peter and he covered his sin completely and forever to not hold it against him anymore. Love says this, I'm going to love with earnestness, the the love of Christ. And when my brother or sister sins, whether it's my wife or kids or friend or whoever, whether it's my husband or son or daughter or whoever, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to help them through it, and I'm going to cover that sin with love. Yes, we're going to address it, but I'm I'm not going to hold it against them because Christ doesn't do that for me. We must bear one another when we fail. So the great question is this, how can I come to love with the earnestness of Christ? How do I do that? Well, unless you are in relationship with Christ, you do not have the capacity to understand and experience the love that God has for you. God, in his greatest expression of love, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to the cross. And Jesus loved you and he loved me so magnificently that he willingly listened to God the Father and he went to the cross. He endured its shame, its beating, its humiliation. He endured the separation from God the Father. God the Father loved us so much that he was willing to separate himself from his son. So that through his death, grand expression of love through his death, you and I could be restored and enter into forever and lasting relationship with the one that loves us. Until you experience this magnificent love of the person of Jesus Christ, you have no idea how to love earnestly like Christ loves you. So I don't know where you stand today as it relates to your experience with Jesus Christ and his love. 
But if you have yet to experience it, I'm asking you, humble yourself and come into relationship with Christ and believe in what he did for you. Here's another one. If you want to experience the love of Christ, you absolutely have to pray for it. God, I can't. This has been one of my, this is one of my grand prayers for decades. Lord, I know I cannot stir in myself my love and affection for you. I know I can't know what it is. I need you to express this to me in ways that I understand. Change my heart, oh God. Help me to see and understand and know and experience your love for me. There is so much in this world that has corrupted my mind and my heart and my understanding of what true love is. I need you to change my heart so that I can experience your love and express it to others. Folks, let's go after the love of Christ so that we can love one another earnestly as Peter is telling us to do. Let's not be shaken by what this world throws at us. Let's be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. Let's love one another earnestly. And here's another one. What sort of people ought we to be? The third one. Verses 9 through 11, ones who serve others faithfully. And this is what it says. This is what Peter says. We must show hospitality, hospitable toward one another. And we must do it without grumbling. Oh, that's a hard one. And we're going to talk about that one for a little bit. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift, and when you come into relationship with Jesus Christ, you have been given gifts that he intends to bless you with and for you to use in order to serve one another, each other, as we are in relationship with Christ. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as, God, or as good stewards of God's varied, or it can be read, manifold grace. You are gifted in so many spectacular ways by God himself in order to bless each other. Manifold. If, if you look around and you see the people sitting to your left and to your right and your front and the back, our church is so magnificently blessed by the grace of God. We should be compelled over and over to, again to serve him earnestly. God's varied, his manifold grace. Verse 11 says, whoever, we must also speak. Speak as ones who are speaking oracles of God. Whoever serves as ones who serve by the strength of God that God supplies. We must be hospitable. We must spend ourselves using the gifts that God has given us and we must make every single word count. Every single word count. Hospitable, not grumbling. We know what hospitality is. Hospitality means that we have a heart's disposition to be welcoming to everyone, to each other. And so let's say you have been asked to host your small group. This is what grumbling would look like. Hold on a second. Hospitality means that we have a heart of welcoming. What is it that makes you grumble? All right? I'll tell you what it is. Love covers a multitude of sins. When you're told to let love cover a multitude of sins, what makes you grumble is when that individual in your small group sins over and over and over and over again. Come on, man. Get your act together. You can beat this. You got to get over it. And then 
I'm gonna, all right, I'm going to cover it. I'm going to cover it just like I know I'm supposed to. I know he's fighting the battle. I'm going to cover it. And then I'm going to go to my wife and say, and you know what? He's bringing his kids. And they're going to make a disaster of my house. And they're going to put nicks in the wall. And all of a sudden, what I have determined to cover with love, I am now grumbling about taking the heart of hospitality and throwing it aside and serving myself. What Peter is saying is, hey, look, do not grumble. Be hospitable. Express a heart of welcoming to those that God has placed in your life. That's hospitality. Every gift must be spent. Look at the passage, as God supplies. I got to celebrate this with you, okay? Yes, this is talking about spiritual gifts. However the Lord has gifted you, you are supposed to serve the church, all right? But his manifold expression of gifts that he has poured out on our church, okay? We seldom ever talk about financial stuff. We seldom ever talk about giving, but I want to celebrate with you today how God has enabled and blessed his church to give, all right? This is us taking advantage of the manifold blessing that he has poured out on us in a financial way. Last year, 2023, our budget was $754,000. So we figured, all right, Lord, we need $754,000 to make our church go. That was last year. In November, we saw a good trend, but we had no idea well, we had a little idea what the Lord was going to do. We thought, okay, he's probably going to, ex- he's probably going to outgive our budget, God is, gifting us, by maybe twenty dollars or $30,000. So what I believe to be a leap of faith, the elders said, hey, look, let's increase the budget by $100,000. So you go from $754,000 to $854,000 So for this year this year. They made that decision in November. By the end of December, giving for last year fell $2,000 short. And somehow money keeps coming in for last year. $2,000 short of what the elders determined to be our budget for this year. This is God's great expression of something as simple as financial blessing in the life of this church. He caused you to outgive last year's budget by $98,000. That is absolutely to be celebrated because that is an expression of the church taking advantage of the manifold grace that God pours out on us all for the sake of the mission that we are after, and that is to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. Folks, we must be hospitable. We must spend, as the passage said, as the Lord enables us, as he strengthens us, that's how we give. And then this one is a really big deal. We must make every single word count. Verse 11 says, whoever speaks, let him do it as he is speaking the oracles of God. Jasper and I stand up here every Sunday, plus Bjorn and Sam from time to time. But yes, we are called to speak the oracles of God to you, his word and what he has to say. But look, this doesn't exclude you. This involves you in it as well. As the Lord provides you opportunity you are to speak what he lays on your heart. There are moments where he is convicting you. I need you to speak this truth. I want you to do it with love. 
and with much grace, but you must speak this truth. Why? Because the time is short. The end of all things is at hand and there are people that need to hear what I have to say to them. And I am using you as a mouthpiece. Using you as a mouthpiece. I had a discussion with a guy two weeks ago, week and a half ago. And he said this. He said, I am afraid I have kept my mouth, this is my paraphrase, I am afraid I've kept my mouth shut for too long. And now those in my life hear Lot speaking. So if you know the account of Lot, God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, you need to leave tomorrow because judgment is coming and I'm going to destroy it. Lot goes to his family. And he says, we got to get out because judgment is coming. God is going to destroy the city and everything that's in it. And what did his sons-in-law do? They laughed at him. They were scoffers. They said, it's not coming. No way. That's not happening. Lot's words sounded like folly to them, to his sons-in-law, to where they didn't leave and they were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. This man said, I am afraid, my lack of speaking, that when I speak of the coming judgment of God into their lives, they will laugh at me. We must make the most of every opportunity as God convicts us. We must speak. We must speak. Be hospitable, using the gifts that God has given us. What sort of people ought we to be? Ones who are unshaken ones that love earnestly, and ones that serve one another, just as Christ enables us to do. The time is short, and we must be living like the time is short. And I'm supposing some of you are sitting in here right now, maybe many of you, and you're like, man, this is a very sobering message. This one's a hard one for me to hear. And I'm with you, like, I would love to walk out of here every Sunday just feeling like a million bucks. And this, this message, I'm supposing there are some that don't feel like a million bucks right now. But here's the answer. If you want to walk out of here feeling like you are ready to get after it, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't care if you're turning 50 or 60 or 70 or 80. And you're like, man, the time is short. The time is short. No, you live. We live as though the time is short because Jesus is coming now. That's what Peter is saying. And it should be something that excites you. Because you are in relationship with Christ and because he says this, and Peter says this in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, memory verses for this sermon series. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. This is who you are. You are a people for God's own possession. He is determined that you are his. And because you are his, We should celebrate the truth that Jesus is coming today. And if he doesn't come today, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. And if he doesn't come tomorrow, I'm looking forward to the next day. We are living as though Christ is coming back now. And it should excite us. We once were nobody, but now 
as we have accepted Christ, we are now God's people and we now stand under his mercy. This should be exciting for you. Now listen, if you are unsettled in your heart today, I actually am happy that you are unsettled because it's my prayer and the prayer of your church that you are convicted by this truth and that you are driven to your knees before Jesus in fear of him in judgment over you. If you do not know the person of Jesus and you are unsettled by this, man, give your life to him and experience the excitement that can come that comes from being in everlasting relationship with him. I also know there are those in you right in, in here right now that have there are, there are people in your life that you still want to share Christ with that still need to hear about Jesus. Let's celebrate the patience of our Lord as he has yet to come back. And let's take the most of every opportunity sharing Christ with them. Let's do everything we can in order to see them come to relationship with him. Remember, God strengthens us as he wills to fulfill his purpose in our life. And so for the one that is struggling right now that, that is thinking of the lost loved one that they have that doesn't yet, has yet to know Jesus, if there is one thing you can do apart from praying for their souls, it's this. You glorify God in front of them. Glorify God in front of them. Look at the end of verse um, 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and, and dominion forever and ever. You want to see your lost loved ones come into relationship with Jesus Christ? God is asking you to do one thing. Glorify him in front of them. As you are not shaken by the things of this world as you are loving your brothers and sisters in Christ earnestly and you are making the most of every opportunity serving one another through and with the love of Christ. Time is of the essence, church. What sort of people ought we to be? I think about this. I drove past a church, a Presbyterian, Falling Spring Presbyterian Church in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. I passed it every Sunday on the way to my church and they had added onto their building and on the side of their building, they had Psalm 145. And it's still etched in my mind. Psalm 145, one generation shall commend your works, the works of God to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. That's what we are to do. I think about when I pray, I think about how often I am so thankful for the Christian heritage I had, that it was passed from that generation to my generation. And one day I have determined to pass it to the next generation, and we are praying and trusting that that generation passes it to the next. One generation shall commend his works to another. If you want to pass the word of God on to the next generation, glorify him in your life. Father, thank you so much for the magnificence of your word and for drawing us into everlasting relationship with you. Lord, I think about those who don't know you yet, and Lord, I'm praying I'm praying, I'm praying that you would provoke them. Convict them that the time is near for your return. And may Summit Church be found living as though you are coming back today. Amen.